Hello and welcome to episode 8 of Storytime with Boone. Thanks again for downloading it. Massive thanks also for all the positive feedback that you've been sending my way. It means a lot. Thank you very much for that. This week would have marked the 66th birthday of a man who was not only an inspiration, but he became a friend during his life. He passed away in 2007, Mr. Anthony H. Wilson. He would have been 66 last Saturday. This episode is dedicated to the greatest Mancunian to ever walk the streets of our city. I'll be talking about the great work he did and I'll share with you an interview that I did with him in uh, 2005 where we talked about Joy Division's Ian Curtis on the 25th anniversary of his death. Keeping this episode Tony Wilson themed, I'll be telling you about the time I took Happy Mondays frontman Sean Ryder to see a stage presentation of a kids TV show, which I did the theme tune for. Turned out to be quite a riot. And I'll tell you about the time I taught Joy Division and New Order's bass legend Peter Hook to DJ on my kitchen table in Stockport. On each episode, I talk about how a particular song I've written came about, and on this podcast, I'll be talking about an Inspiral Carpets song called Directing Traffic, which started its life, believe it or not, while I was watching the rave scene emerge in the Hacienda in the late 1980s. The unsigned band that you're going to hear at the end of this episode are another bunch of lads from Manchester called Leah, that's L-Y-E-R-R. And as you know, my podcasts are brought to you by Distorted Productions and the people at Red's True Barbecue in Manchester. So thank you all for helping this happen again. Don't forget to check out the Spotify playlist, which I assemble every week, where you can hear the full versions of the tracks on the episode and other tracks which are in some way connected to the stories I've been telling. Okay, let's do it. Storytime with Boone with Red's True Barbecue. So one of my best friends is Peter Hook, a.k.a. Hooky, of New Order, Joy Division... Peter Hook and the Light, Monaco, Freebase, various other bands that he's had over the years. Around 2006, 2007, when New Order hadn't done anything for a few years, he was always complaining that he was, he was cheesed off because he, he wasn't getting any money, he wanted some more dosh. He's like, that Bernard's all right, Bernard's got a boat. And I'm like, what, what do you want a boat for? He said, I don't want a boat, but I just... I said, you just said you want a boat. He said, I didn't say I want a boat. I said, you did, he said, Bernard's got a boat and I want one. He said, I didn't say... Anyway, so I said, stop talking about boats. All you need to do is learn to DJ like what I do. And he said, I can't DJ. I want where to start. So I said, I'll, I'll teach you. Just come around to your house one night, three week, and I'll set you up and show you how to do it. And he came around. I remember actually, he came around and he bought this new sports car with him. He had his personalised number plate on it. And uh, <laughs> I said, it's a little Japanese thing. I said, what's up with doors? He said, oh, the suicide doors. They, they open the wrong way. And I said, well, why did they do that? He said, I don't know, he said, it looks really good. I said, well, they're dangerous, aren't they? If somebody gets out and you step off, you're going to drag them down the road. He said, that's why they call suicide doors. I said, they should call them bloody murder doors, manslaughter doors or something. Anyway, so he comes round and I set up a pair of uh, CD decks and a little DJ mixer on my kitchen table. And I showed him how to DJ. I said, yeah, press that, turn that up. When that stops, press that, turn that up. Every so often, stick your hand in there. And that was it. He picked it up immediately. Not hard, is it? It's not hard work. And he immediately became one of the most in-demand superstar DJs on the club circuit, going out for like four-figure sums from day one. Because obviously he was was in New Order. He was a legend, you know what I mean? And he has turned out to be a great DJ as well. In fact, I DJed with him a few weeks ago at South Nightclub in Manchester, and he absolutely smashed it out of the park. He smashed the ball out of the park, as they say. And he's obviously one of the most recognisable, one of the greatest bass players of all time. This is him now with Joy Division, recorded in Stockport, funnily enough, 30 years before he learnt to be a superstar DJ on my kitchen table in that same town, Stockport. Peter Hook with Joy Division. And she 
Remember in the last episode, I said I'd tell you about the time I took Sean Ryder to see um, a stage presentation of a kids' TV show. Right, I'll tell you now, this is a proper story, this. Towards the end of the 1990s, I was asked to compose and record the theme tune for a, a brand new kids' TV show for ITV. It was called NG Benji. It was a, one of these stop-frame animation series. So it's one of the last great British TV kids' animation programmes before everything went CGI, whatever they call it. Now, Engie Benji was an engine doctor, and his best friends included uh, his dog, Jollop, and his van, uh, Dan. And other characters in the in Engie Benji's world were astronaut Al, who had a spaceship, which was called Spaceship, and Dotty the Buzz, and she had a buzz called Buzz. You get the picture. Every episode of Engie Benji involved the drama caused by these vehicles breaking down and Engie's admirable efforts to make everything all right again. I also wrote and recorded another 14 songs or so about Engie's friends and uh, the vehicles that lived in this world with Engie Benji. So eventually ITV put together a, a touring stage show. It went around the UK, played to like thousands of kids and the parents, you know, matinees through the day and that. And the show featured all the characters from the TV series, obviously people in massive suits, you know, dressed up as the characters. All the vehicles were in the show, and there was a new character that was introduced. She was called Lucy. So Lucy's job was to be the MC throughout the live performance, so she wasn't actually in the cartoon series, but she was on stage. And she was the only character who wasn't in one of these massive suits that these productions usually feature. The stage show was to feature five or six of me Angie's songs, which was great hearing those in the theatre and all that. And me and Mrs Boone decided to go along with our little boy Oscar, to the Engie Benji show when it came to the Opera House uh, Theatre in Manchester. And my mate Sean, Happy Monday's frontman Sean Ryder, he was a big fan of Engie Benji as well because his little lad was really into it, Joseph. Sean even suggested at the time that we should form an Engie Benji band where we could go on tour around the UK doing my Engie Benji songs. He wanted to be in that band. So we invited Sean and little Joe to come along with us to this uh, live show in Manchester. And it was around midday when we got there. Sean was already on the Guinness and he'd covered himself in nicotine patches because he knew there probably wouldn't be much chance for a smoking break, you know, like during the show. So the show started with Lucy coming on stage before the rest of the cast. Hello, boys and girls. Hello, Lucy. Are you all having a good time? Yes, Lucy. And then she says, are you good at keeping secrets, boys and girls? And everybody goes, yes, Lucy. Lucy goes on to explain to the audience that today is a very special day because it's Jollop the dog's birthday. And all the kids are going, ooh. But she says, when Jollop comes on stage in a minute, do you promise not to tell him that we've organised a party for him because we're having a surprise party? Yes, Lucy, we promise. All that. Because you see, children, Jollop thinks we've forgotten that it's his birthday and he's a bit gutted. So please don't tell him about the surprise party that we're having at the end of the show, will you? Promise me. OK, Lucy, we promise. All that kind of stuff going on. <laughs> and as the show starts... Engie Benji comes out, place goes off, all these kids screaming. Dan the van comes out, massive applause. Then after a few minutes, Lucy gets to the mic and she whispers down it, OK, boys and girls, it's time for Jollop to come out, Engie's dog. Remember our secret, won't you? Don't mention his surprise birthday party. Do you promise? And the entire audience whisper back at Lucy, We promise you, Lucy. <laughs> Right, so, so Jollop comes bouncing out onto the stage with my song, the Jollop Jump, playing dead loud over the PA system. I'm like, that makes my song, that. Crowd are going wild, kids screaming, waving all the expensive flashing contraptions from merchandise stall. 
10 quid a shot or something. Anyway, the applause dies down. Jollop comes dancing to the centre stage, tongue out like that, like dogs do. <laughs> at which point, Sean William Ryder shouts out at the top of his voice, Jollop, it's your party! And it's like this massive gasp. 400 or so incredulous parents swept the auditorium. It's like nothing I've heard. Kids are crying. Then Sean giggles him here, fancy another drink, Booney. <laughs> the lesson being, don't ever take Sean Ryder to theatre, especially if it's a kid's show, and especially when he's had a Guinness. On every episode of my podcast, I like to tell you about a song that I've written over the years and tell you what inspired it and how it came about. And because this episode is dedicated to the memory of Anthony Wilson, I'll talk about a song that has a couple of connections with the great man. There's an early in Sparrow Carpets song, which I wrote in 1989, and it's called Directing Traffic. And the song started life literally in the Hacienda nightclub. And it was influenced by the arrival of the uh, the drug scene that came along with the, the new rave music of the time, the late 80s. So the big fish, little fish dancing that became really popular at the time made me think of when cops used to stand in the road and do that directing traffic thing. That's where the title comes from. Simple as that. Now you know. See you next week. No, there's also the, um, the direct reference, obviously, to the amount of stuff that was being trafficked in and out of the club by the punters. And seeing the effect that sustained use of some of these drugs was having on people around me, some of my mates, and that's what inspired the lines, uh, I see a skull on a stick, I see a skeleton with skin, and uh, you're sewing up your death shroud from the inside. That comes directly from the effect I saw some of this stuff having on, on mates of mine. And it was always meant to be observational rather than a judgmental song. It still is for me. It's an observation of what was going on at that time. And it's still 30 years later, 30 years after I wrote it, it's still for me. It's the highlight of our life set today. It's the one that I love playing the most. I just love the way it sounds. The organ riff is just a simple, it's a piano house type riff. Also very popular at the time, but instead of playing it on a piano, uh, I played it on my old 1960s Farfisa electric organ, which is why it sounds a bit more, more like the doors, doesn't it? But it was a piano house inspired riff. The other Anthony Wilson connection with this track is that this is a track that was the, the first track we ever played on television, courtesy of Mr. Wilson, 30th of January 1989, so two weeks after the Stone Roses made the career-defining appearance on The Other Side of Midnight, we did it. We did an instrumental version of Directing Traffic, and I still consider it to be one of our greatest TV moments, really. A true garage band, slightly wonky in the way we looked and sounded, particularly in the way we looked. It, it actually looks like we've been shipped in from another time, I reckon. Me with my uh, me omnipresent flask of coffee by my side, that, that went everywhere with me back in the day. And there's various like, cine film and oil projectors rattling away around us. It, garage, full stop, garage. It was also the first time that the world got to see the very first ever in Spiral Carpets Moo uh, cow t-shirt because the, the t-shirt that I'm wearing on the TV appearance, I handmade it for the TV show. And the reaction that the shirt got inspired us to start producing them and today we've sold tens of thousands of them and as you'll see if you ever check out at the end of the performance Anthony Wilson steps back into the shot saying in spiral carpets looking for a singer but doing alright in the meantime
As I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, I'm dedicating this episode to a man that would have turned 66 this week. Last Saturday would have been the 66th birthday of Anthony H. Wilson, a man who I got to know quite well over the 30 years since I first met him, which was in 1978. Throughout the 70s, Tony or Anthony, as he sometimes preferred. He was the the face of Granada Television up in the north, starting as a a rookie TV journalist, and then he became a presenter. And he'd often be seen executing some ridiculous and dangerous tasks simply in the name of good television. And and that's how he won a place in the, the region's arts originally. And he was always keen to show his enthusiasm for music when he was on the news programmes that he was involved with. He'd always shoe on some music stuff in there somehow. Again, that made us love him even more. And eventually Granada started to give him his own music slots and that's when the real magic started to happen. So first of all, it was a little What's On guide on the uh, nightly regional news programme, Granada Reports. And then later on, they give him his own music show, so it's called So It Goes. And it ran through 1976 and 1977. Tony Wilson became the first person in the world to put the Sex Pistols on TV. That was August 1976. And that's how pioneering he was with the work he was doing in the North. And to us up there in the North, it was like nothing short of a revolution, this thing. We'd tune in every week, you'd see the lights of the jam, Susie and the Banshees, the Clash, and they'd be performing either in the Granada studios or in some local venue. So you'd go to a gig and all the Granada team would be there filming it. It was brilliant. It was like our, our kind of music had arrived, you know what I mean? And by 77 and 78, you'd often see Tony out and about at gigs in and around Manchester. Now, partly because of his earlier slapdash escapades as the uh, hapless travelling reporter for Granadaland, and partly because he came across as extremely well-educated, he'd always get he'd always get bullied or verbally abused. He'd get verbally abused by rooms full of people at gigs. And it was a bit out of order, really. They'd be like that. Well, senior posh, get yeah. Wilson, you knobhead. He got it all the time. And he always took it completely in his stride. Oh, water off a duck's back, that's what it was. And he seemed to thrive on it. Many a time he'd be trying to introduce a band on stage, bigging them up, you know, for all the right reasons, because they love music. And you will not be able to hear what he was saying, because people would be chanting like, Wilson is a dickhead, Wilson is a dickhead. And he'd be loving it. He'd be on stage like, yeah, go on, fuck off. I first met Anthony outside the Russell Club in Moss Side in Manchester. So it was in 1978 and I dropped out of art college to pursue my love of this new punk music and basically to make some money so I could start learning an instrument and getting into bands and that. Tony had started putting a night on at the Russell Club called Factory. It's a weekly club night, putting gigs on that. And he'd bring in people as diverse as, you know, icons or relative icons like Iggy Pop and totally unknown bands from Sheffield with weird names like Cabaret Voltaire and The Human League. And at one of these gigs, me and my friend Mark from Art College, Mark Widler, we bumped into Tony outside the Russell Club and we got talking and he asked our names and Mark said, Hi Tony, I'm Mark. And Tony said, What do you do, Mark? I'm an art student. What's your name, young man? Turns to me, Clint Boone. And what do you do, Clint Boone? Well, I've just dropped out of art college. And Tony says, and this is the first conversation I've ever had with him in my life, Fucking hell, there's only one thing worse than an art student. It's a failed art student. And walks off laughing, right? And at moments like that, you could really see why people did call him a twat. A lot of people called him a twat. But I always loved him, mate. I could see why he wound people up. But I loved him. I thought he was brilliant every inch of the way. And he went on to introduce us to some of the greatest bands of all time, including Joy Division and New Order and Happy Mondays and... A certain ratio. It's a great label, Factory Records. And he also put the Inspiral Carpets on television before anyone else in the world. 
and it was under really unusual circumstances. What had happened, Tony was out at some house party somewhere, some dodgy house party, and he bumped into our, our drummer, Craig, and our roadie, Noel, Noel Gallagher. Now, at the time, Tony had his own really cool late-night music show called The Other Side of Midnight. This was like 89, this was going on. And Craig and Noel had chatted with Tony at this uh, this party, and when they mentioned that they were with the Inspiral, Tony immediately said, look, I like what I've heard of you guys, why don't you come on The Other Side of Midnight? So obviously we were like, absolutely, let's get on there. What an amazing opportunity. So we got a date in the diary a couple of weeks after, totally buzzing about it. And a few days before the TV appearance on Granada, our singer Stephen dropped out of the band. He left the Inspirals, not to be seen for another 20 years until he, he walked back into our rehearsal room and reclaimed his place behind the mic in 2011, whatever it was. Anyway, so back then, 89, we've got this in the diary. We're going on other side of midnight with Tony Wilson. We've got no singer. So we phoned him up to tell him, Tony, that we, we, we can't do it, we're going to have to cancel it. Uh, but massive thanks and, you know, maybe try again when we get a singer. And immediately, without batting an eyelid, he just said, and it's proper Tony Wilson this, he just said, come and do it anyway, just do an instrumental. And we did. And it was a great bit of television as well. I was watching it recently. And it said so much about the spirit of Manchester, Granada, and about Wilson in general, and about the Inspirals as well. Just everything, all of it was just so Manchester. You know what I mean? It was just... This garage band, there were no singer. Me with a flask of coffee outside of me. <laughs> right? And it's just amazing to tell it. And through my radio work, I got to do quite a lot of stuff with Tony over the, the subsequent years. And I once interviewed him in his Manchester loft apartment. And it was on the 25th anniversary of Ian Curtis's death. And it was one of my most treasured moments in my career as a radio presenter. That. It was a beautiful moment, despite the fact that Anthony's dog, William, had his nose stuck between my balls for pretty much all the interview. So I'm going to play the recording right now of the chat that I had with my friend and my hero, Anthony H. Wilson. It was recorded in the city centre home that he had in Manchester, May 2005. It was the 25th anniversary of the death of Joy Division frontman Ian Curtis. Also in attendance, as you will hear, Anthony's dog, William. Story time with Boone, with Red's True Barbecue. It's my total pleasure to be sat with Mr. Anthony H. Wilson. Briefly, who is he? He discovered Joy Division. He's the reason why we had the Hacienda, and he's the reason why we had Factory Records, and as such, he's brought some of the most amazing music. And by the way, the noise you're going to hear throughout this interview is my stupid dog bouncing a very heavy ball off, off the floor. He's only a year and a half, and he's a complete lunatic, and he's a new order dog. It's called William, and he's nibbling my left arm as we speak. Uh, Tony, first thing I want to ask you, how do you remember Ian Curtis? I probably remember him most as kind of uh, the nice, very quiet, seemingly very sensitive, um, very polite young man. And um, although that wasn't the first time I met him, he was a, a violent, abusive lout. And, um, and obviously the, the images one keeps in one's mind is of the most charismatic, exciting stage performer of his generation and other generations. But mostly I remember the, you know, the nice, quiet boy talking about poetry or whatever else one talked about. So the scene in the uh, movie 24-hour party people where he called you the c-word on your first meeting was that something similar to the truth? It was very similar, it was one of the few bits of the movie because the 24-hour party people was a complete collection of lies mistruths and scandals and in fact that was one bit that was true yes Ian was um, came up to me and got very angry and abusive about the fact that I hadn't put him on television yet which was, was fair enough because I'd already decided in fact only that week that I got the um, the first seven-inch single and thought, oh, well, they progressed well from when I saw them as Warsaw, and it's their turn next. I didn't tell him that, but, um, yeah. 
You must be incredibly proud to be part of the story of Ian Curtis and Joy Division. I always say that being the person who signed the cheque that paid for the labels that stuck on the 12-inch single atmosphere, just that, if that was all I'd ever done in life, to be connected in any way at all in that way to pieces of art like that, yes, privileged, lucky, oh, I'm always amazed it happened, yeah. yeah Go on. Yeah, of course, can I do it? Yeah, Tony Wilson's going to blow his nose. <laughs> William, you like Clint, don't you? He likes you me. Do. A lot. He does indeed. Come to dog set. My baby, <gasps> my baby Oscar would love you. He loves dogs. He's having a playmate. Yeah. Good heavens. It's been 25 years. Do you think Ian's absence has made the music and the man even more iconic? I think the death of a rock star is always. A romantic image and we have we have our own romantic poets in the late 18th and early 19th century to blame for that because they romanticize the idea of the artist and we've been living with that kind of stuff ever since so um the idea that it made ian and joy division famous the fact that he killed himself uh, which a lot of people still think is the case those people who were working at the time me and erasmus know exactly what it was like because we were sitting there on the thursday before ian died and a gentleman who has gone before you in this profession, the great Tony Michaelides, radio DJ, but before them, Ireland sales rep, came into our offices and said, uh, this is on the Thursday, and said, have you got a single coming out in 10 days called Love Will Tear Us Apart or something? And we, we go, yeah. Do you have any idea how many you're going to sell? We went, well, don't know really. He says, no, he says, I've just been around all the shops in the northeast and all the shops in the northwest this week as a sales rep. And every single shop I go to, the manager says, do you know those guys at Factory on, in Disbury? They've got, they've got a Joy Division single coming out, blah, blah, blah. And he said he has never seen or heard such excitement about an upcoming single release. So in, in effect, Unknown Pleasures and Transmission, the single, Unknown Pleasures, the album, had gone into the consciousness of the public slowly. I mean, originally we sold 5,000 of Unknown Pleasures, then 10,000. And this whole thing had been there for a year, moving around the emotions and the minds of the young of Britain. And the appetite was phenomenal. So far from Ian's death sort of creating the Joy Division thing, it... Um, if you're the president, it killed it. It stopped it. I mean, there is no, there is no imagining what could have happened for a band that wonderful, with a lead singer that talented and that charismatic. You know, had they just got to America that Monday morning. So, um, no, I think, I think, rock myth is rock myth, be it Hendrix or Cobain or, or Curtis, and that comes along. But it's all, it's all irrelevant without the songs. And I think that. The great thing about the music business is we all we all know it's all full of it's full of Simon Cowles and it's full of hype and it's full of uh, publicity stunts and full of chart hyping as it used to be, which may well have gone. Mm -hmm. And there's all this stuff, but yet it's an incredibly honest business because if you have no good songs, nothing will happen. And if you have good songs, everything will happen. And I think it's the quality of the great songs of Joy Division that have kept the whole thing going for this long and it will it will keep on going it's like you know when one meets Paul McCartney these days and Paul says you know hello toe or something 
I get quite moved by that because McCartney says hello, because McCartney is the Beatles and the Beatles songs, they're still there. These these great songs, like Lovell Tears Apart and Atmosphere and 24 Hour and all the rest, they don't go away. Right. They don't go away. So it is entirely based not on an image and not on some sort of martyrdom. It's just based on great songs. What's your favourite Joy Division song? My favourite Joy Division song, I do find that atmosphere reappears constantly throughout my life, be it the fact that my late partner, the fifth member of Joy Division, Rob Gretton, hated that video and told me that the group hated the video. And I spent about 12 years believing that the group hated the video, which was made in 88, only to find out two or three years ago that, in fact, the group loved it. Just Rob hated it, but he, would, he obviously um, wanted to upset me. And the fact that now, strangely, the man who made that video, Anton Corbin, is making the Ian Curtis biopic. And also, when I got out of the limousine two years ago at Cannes, at the Cannes Film Festival, which was just two years ago, uh, in front of the red carpet for 24-hour party people, I got out of the car and what should come swilling out of the speakers across the whole of the croisette, but again, atmosphere. Um, atmosphere, I also I think, I, I just love Mart the way Martin did the bells, those, those falling bells that come in every so often. So atmosphere, although it's always that weird thing that as a, a record company executive like, um, you know, you don't spend all your life in the studio. You can't afford to. That's what the musicians do. And there is the Rob Gretton School of Management, which I actually adhere to. I mean, I'm, great managers are my heroes. People like Peter Grant of Led Zeppelin, Malcolm McLaren of the Pistols, and Rob Gretton of Joy Division. And Rob's management mode was the day they went in the studio, he would turn up with them and sit at the back of the studio demanding cups of tea and sandwiches without any of that rabbit food in them. <laughs> uh, until you left studio. So that's what a great manager does. But me, I always find that you actually go in and out, you, you visit on occasions. But the odd thing is that you normally visit one day and they're recording a particular track. And then when you turn up three weeks later, they're doing overdubs on that track. And then when you turn up five weeks later, they're mixing that track. So there's always one track that is, is the track that you've, you've been through. So I have particularly fond memories of 24 Hour on uh, on, on Closer, which always seemed to be the track that they were doing when I was in and out of the studio. So, right. He's been gone 25 years. If Ian Curtis was in front of you for two minutes, what would you say to him? I think I'd say what I said in the Chapel of Rest, you stupid bugger. That's what I would say, because um, he shouldn't have done it. I mean, I always, I always also think that there's... I mean, being being funny about it, because you might as well have a laugh, because Ian had a laugh, and Ian was... was one of the leading japers in New Order and Joy Division, who were a group who, for whom music came second to practical jokes. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, the joke is that if, you know, these rock and roll stars who write lyrics that we all take to heart, if, he, if there hadn't have been that line, a cry for help, a plea for anaesthesia, some of us might not have been so stupid, and believe me, we were stupid, to think that his first attempt was just a cry for help for anaesthesia and wasn't actually the first of two attempts to top himself. So um, I just said what I said at the time, which is, you stupid, stupid bugger. Why did you, why did you leave? Anthony H. Wilson, thank you very much indeed. It's been a pleasure, Clint. Thank you, Ben.
When I first heard Tony was ill in 2006, I didn't for one minute realise how serious it was and I didn't think we were ever going to lose him. It was one of those characters that you just thought were going to be here forever, like John Peel and like David Bowie and like my dad. Sadly, the world lost Tony to cancer on the 10th of August 2007. Now, his legacy, not just in terms of the music he brought to us and, and the career breaks he gave to some of us, but the incredible impact his presence had on the, the city of Manchester. You know, it's unsurpassable what he did. In my opinion, the city of Manchester today, 2016, it would look a lot different if Tony hadn't decided to stay here and bless the city with his, with his love and his passion and his, his spirit. I got to work alongside Tony for a couple of years when he presented a radio show for XFM Manchester. Now, by the time he died, he'd moved over to the, the BBC across the road to continue his radio work. But the single piece of radio work that I'm the most proud of, out of everything I've ever done, is the five-hour Tony Wilson tribute that I did uh, for XFM Manchester the week after he died. I got to speak to loads of artists and music industry individuals who wanted to talk about Tony and about his work and what he'd done for them. So people like Susie Sue was on it, Paul Cook out of the Sex Pistols was on it, I think Noel Gallagher contributed loads of other TV personalities, but the man who spoke the words which will always resonate with me, all these years after that little radio show that I did, it was something that Sex Pistols manager Malcolm McLaren said, and he died soon after as well. But when I asked Malcolm McLaren what he thought about Anthony Wilson's work, he just came out and said, Tony was the spirit of the outlaw. And I thought that was the most beautiful epitaph for a man who never did anything by the rules. He broke so many rules. I was honoured to be invited to Tony's funeral. My wife was invited too, but on the day of the, uh, the funeral, we couldn't get a babysitter for baby Hector. He's nine months old at the time. So Charlie said, I'll drop you off and I'll walk around Manchester with the baby for a bit and I'll meet you afterwards. And as I was uh, arriving at the service, one of the funeral organisers, who was a good friend of Tony's, asked why Mrs Boone wasn't coming in. And we said, well, she's got the baby. We haven't got a babysitter, so I'm going to meet her. And this lad said, just get, get in there, bring the baby Tony wouldn't mind getting. So we all went in, and I might be wrong, but I think Hector might have been the only baby in there. He's nine months old, as I said, and he was breastfeeding at the time as well, like relentlessly on the boob like a mad baby. Now, those of you that have had babies will know that there's those special moments in the development in there when the it, brilliant things happen, like learning to smile, learning to laugh, learning to talk, obviously, saying dada, saying mama, whatever, for the first time, learning to put yourself up on the furniture, and, and the big one is obviously learning to walk, in it. But the thing is, a lot of the time, you can't predict when these things are going up and you can't predict what day your kid's going to walk, can you? So, <laughs> brings me nicely to that life-changing moment when babies learn how to do really loud, wet raspberries, big, massive, farty sounds from the dribbling mouth of a nine-month-old, right? And that's what happened at this flipping funeral, Tony Wilson's funeral. Little Hector Angel Boone giggling away, Head popping out from under Mrs. Boone's shirt, smiling like that and doing these massive raspberries. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> and I do believe, I do believe to this day that even Anthony H. Wilson would have appreciated that moment. Factory fame, financial muck-ups, poetic form and the fall. The 4th of June 1976 at the Lesser Free Trade Hall. Oh, talk to me, oh, talk to me of Gret and God and Granada and of Hooky and of Hannah and how the fighting just got harder. Hamlet, Ibsen, the IRA, Jesus, Mary and Keith, Joseph, Joy Division, Judaism, the importance of the moment. 
of Liam London, Lust for Life, of Louis Louis and Linnaeus Banks, of Manchester Music, Marijuana, Majesty and Karl Marx, of nightclubs, new bands, the water up and hymen on orchestral manoeuvres in the dark, and almost topical late night intellectual chats about the other side of midnight of the dark. Come and talk to me of all these things, and there's one thing that's for certain. I'll see the face and I'll hear the voice of Anthony H. Wilson. I'll see the face and I'll hear the voice of Anthony H. Wilson. That's a short extract from a piece called St. Anthony, an ode to Anthony H. Wilson. A good friend of mine, Mike Gary, did the words and the music is by Joe Dodell. You can hear the full version of it if you go to the Spotify playlist which accompanies this episode. Okay, it's time for me to get off once again. Thanks again for downloading the podcast. If you like it, please subscribe if you've not already done so and uh, send us some nice feedback if you can uh, on the old iTunes, assuming that you like what you've heard. If you don't like it, just, you know, don't say it. Thanks again to Red's True Barbecue and to Distorted Productions for helping put this together. And don't forget you can follow me on Twitter at The Real Boon. So, as always, I'll leave you with a track from an unsigned band. Uh, it's a band that I stumbled across a couple of years ago. They're called Lear, L-Y-E-R-R. And they came up to me in a, cl- a club that I was DJing at. They put a CD in my hand, which a lot of bands do, and it's always a great thing to try. And I got it home. After a couple of days, I played it, and I love it. And the track I'm going to play is going to be released as the band's second single soon. Recorded at a studio that the Inspiral Carpets are very familiar with called Airtight Studios in Charlton. Apparently they picked it because uh, bands like ourselves and the Cortinas and MGMT have been in there, Well has been in there. Uh, a little bit about the band, uh, they're from Manchester and here's a little bit that the band Leah have told me about themselves. We are aiming to be the boys on the blocks of Manchester with electrifying guitars, high energy sets and sing-along choruses. We have managed to headline Manchester Academy 3 on only our second ever gig as well as selling out the Zombie Shack on Oxford Road in Manchester. We continue to be booked around the city and we'll be playing Night and Day Cafe on April the 1st and we've now begun to generate a bit of interest in the North East as well. So four students from Greater Manchester, aged between 20 and 21, uh, they're going to finish in unit in May and they don't fancy doing the 9 to 5 sort of stuff just yet. Big influences on the band, Jack White, The Strokes, The Orwells, Libertines, Arctic Monkeys and they'd love to follow in the footsteps of bands like Blossoms and Catfish who are absolutely killing it at the moment. And they also go on to say that not just because they've grown up in Manchester but because Oasis are a brilliant band they said we can't not have Oasis in our influences another one of the favourite bands so I'll close this episode of my podcast with a track from an unsigned band the track's called Miss Bright Ideas and it's by Ryan Johnson Sam Green Rory Magna and James Kershaw aka Leah see you next week Boone Army Storytime with Boone with Red's True Barbecue subscribe now on iTunes
radio warm because I 